Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is Hannah Tribe from Tribe Studio Architects, a 20-year-old Sydney-based practice known for their playful and expressive approach to residential and community projects. In this episode, Hannah and I discussed how she's designed her business to run efficiently and profitably from a focus on gradual and sustainable growth to succession planning and delegation, as well as the hires that she's made to help her focus her time on the studio's projects rather than administration. We discussed Hannah's insights into how residential clients experience the design journey from their initial sense of overwhelm to their enjoyment of the design process as an act of self-expression of their personality and goals for their lives. We looked at why Hannah believes that her studio does not have a house style, but instead a few key areas of interest that tie their projects together, and she shared her thoughts on why some projects that embody these values tend to resonate more with potential clients than others. We looked at how Hannah has approached public speaking in front of audiences of non-architects and how speaking has been valuable opportunity for her to clarify her thinking, engage with peers and get the general public excited by design and creativity. And finally, we talked about the difficulties that small but experienced practices like Tribe face in winning government and public projects despite their track records in other sectors, but how this is becoming easier as councils like the City of Sydney push for small practices to be included in public procurement processes. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Hannah Tribe from Tribe Studio Architects. Hannah, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Great to be here. Oh, it's, it's very exciting. And uh, okay, so let's maybe start with a little bit of the Tribe Studio origin story. Like let's let's go back in time. You know, the studio's been around for a really long time and you started, you know, early on in your career. So just give me give me the backstory. So we're celebrating 20 years tomorrow night, Dave, which is pretty exciting. Oh, we have, tomorrow we night? Are you have having a par- party or what are you doing? We're, we're having a team dinner and we're planning nice. what to do for our 21st. Okay, where cool. we have a proper blowout. <laughs> um, I think, um, so 20 years ago, I started Tribe Studio as a sole trader and then our other 20th birthday will be in two years when we um, incorporated as a company. Oh, cool. But I was really young. I'd worked, um, I worked at Durbeck Block for one year after graduating from university and 
I kind of decided I didn't want to do architecture. Maybe I didn't want to live in Sydney. You know, I had a bit of a, I think they call it a quarter life crisis that you have when you're 24, 25, um, with the hope that we'll all live to 100. So I left work and I was painting. I was painting on commission and I had a painting show and I was teaching architecture studios at uni. And just kind of accidentally, friends started offering me tiny weenie commissions. And that's really how Tribe Studio started. And I really was still thinking that I would become a set designer or um, film designer when I accidentally fell in love with architecture. So it was, it's kind of a funny origin story. It's not um, full of purpose and goal setting. It was really, it's been really accidental and really fun. But I didn't really decide I loved doing architecture until getting to site. Yeah. So yeah, that stage of the process where started your project started getting to the point where you're going on site, seeing things being built, and that was when you were like, oh, this is exciting. This is actually fun. This yeah. is maybe different to set design or maybe it's yeah. similar in a way. Well, I think set design would be amazing. I was reflecting on that this morning, like how incredible to do. You know those Star Wars sets where yeah, yeah, yeah. there's like a, you know, a desert country but it's obviously got some sandstone and everything's made out of sandstone and you have this like they developed this incredibly incredible vernacular that's made really specifically out of a place. I would still love to do one of those. Just, just absolutely, saying. absolutely. I think that, that could be the year twenty-one of the studio onwards. You guys just do this <laughs> radical pivot and just start designing Star Wars sets. No one's asking for them. Yeah. No one's paying for it. But you guys just decide to pro bono a, a landscape somewhere. It's that exciting. sounds awesome. And I don't want to do like just one set. I want to do the whole city. Like the the launching pad, how so does cool. the like protector shield work? All, all <laughs> the technology, all the urban design, the whole lot. <laughs> I love it. And so this um, studying out the studio, you know, picking up because you started early and you I, like you mentioned you had some small jobs with friends and things like that. But did that stuff kind of gravitate towards more residential stuff, or was it friends kind of going like oh, I'm doing this? commercial space or what, what what sort of stuff were you guys getting into in those early days? There was a bit of, it was a bit of a mix. It was mainly commercial to begin with. Um, oh, okay. House extensions and renovations, but we did a yoga studio and a couple of office spaces um, early on. Um, so a little bit of commercial, but mainly commercial interiors. We didn't really do any um, like work, at, built work outside of residential, but at the same time we were doing competition entries and speculative work or paper architecture and that um, we seem to kind of develop the two strands simultaneously. So unbuilt and theoretical work and then learning how to build things on site with very little experience at the beginning yeah. of the practice. Yeah. Did you find that those competitions and those unsolicited things, did they, did they sort of end up translating into built stuff or was it just like a good exercise for you to kind of keep thinking theoretically and you know, evolving those ideas and, and that sort of thing. I think that, yeah, they serve both of those purposes. I think unsolicited work is fantastic because you don't have a client and, it, you know, if it's very theoretical and conceptual, you don't have a budget either. So you are <laughs> able to work without um, the regular constraints. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we did, I suppose in 2008, we did a invited project for the National Architecture Conference, the CV08, it was called Critical Visions that Richard Francis Jones was the curator of. And that project, it was imagining the centre of Sydney, the city, Sydney CBD in 2050. And he invited a really interesting bunch of young practitioners. So John Choi from Crofi was there and Matt Chan from Scale, um, Andrew Maynard, 
and there were two others. I can't remember who they were, which is terrible. I think it might have been um, Aaron, who's now at um, Edition Office, but I'm not sure. Anyway, we, we were imagining a whole lot of very young practitioners imagining what the city might be. And we were invited to present to the conference, which was pretty amazing at that um, level of all of our careers, I suppose. And our project, Tribe Studios project for the city went on to win the Institute of Architects Unbuilt Award that year. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that was really great for visibility within the profession and that's gone on, like the non-residential part of our portfolio is really, I think, supported by critical engagement, visibility and collaboration within the profession and certainly working with larger architecture firms. So, yeah, and competition entries, you know, we won a couple of competitions early on, didn't get built. It's the, the genesis story of most architecture practices so uh, yeah and and at the same time just you know the house projects getting getting larger probably getting more experimental and really getting some some craft both the craft of architecture and the craft of construction experience under our belts Today's episode of Office Talk is also sponsored by Mast Furniture. Mast Furniture is an established furniture design and manufacturing company based in Brisbane. They've been in operation for 10 plus years and built a national and international reputation for producing original furniture of the highest quality. With an in-depth knowledge of traditional woodworking techniques combined with utilising modern technology, mass production capabilities position them uniquely in Australia to produce high quality, technically challenging furniture. Mast enjoy working with architects and interior designers on both residential and commercial projects, and their range of furniture is small yet considered. In March of this year, Mast released their new Beam collection. Designed by Adam Cornish, Beam focuses on the marriage of upholstery and timber and how to strike a balance between the two. So to learn more about Mast Furniture, visit their website, mastfurniture.com.au or check out their Instagram at mastfurniture. With the residential projects, you know, they're such, they take such a long time. And in those early years of the practice, it's pretty excruciating because you don't have a lot of finished work to show and photograph and stuff like that. So going through those cycles of finishing projects, photographing them, being able to show that leading to attracting new potential clients and that second kind of maybe that next step up in terms of projects and things like that. I mean, that, that takes years and years and years typically. I mean, did you find that that process was, was going kind of quickly enough or did it happen in, in a few years or were you guys kind of sitting there going, shit, we're not raising our profile at all. Um, we, got, we got stuff in the pipeline that's ages away. Thank God we have this sort of these competitions and these things that we're getting involved with and these collaborations and stuff with other architects because otherwise mm. no one would even know where, you know, we'd, we'd be like living under a rock, you know. Um, <laughs> it's a great place to live, architecturally. <laughs> Carved out of a single piece of stone. Yeah, exactly, beautiful. Um, we, I think in the, in the early years, so certainly from, you know, 2003 to 2006 or seven, I, I did only really have one toe in the architecture bath. And I was painting and teaching and, you know, thinking about writing a PhD and all these other things. So I wasn't, I suppose I didn't really care that we weren't getting visibility and the work kind of started coming in and, um, and just kept coming in organically. And I wasn't, yeah, nice. I wasn't chasing it. I didn't um, ask anybody to dance. And as a result, you do the work that just turns up on your door without being really strategic about it, which I think is probably not a very architectural way to um, start any kind of project, particularly a business, but ultimately it worked and it supported me kind of 
you know, deciding what I wanted to do with my life in that in that funny period in my 20s. And then by the time we were on site with a couple of projects and then um, had them photographed and they went on to be, you know, published and win awards, that all kind of within the first 10 years we got a lot of recognition. I'd really fallen in love with architecture and decided, you know, from kind of not caring very much, gone to... Um, you know, a white knuckle level of caring, <laughs> probably caring too much for some of that period. Um, and then and then it all just kind of happened and and um, snowballed. So we won Institute of Architect Awards and then also Interiors. You know, in 2013, so only 10 years old, we got Designer of the Year in one of the Interiors um, Awards. So that generated a whole lot more work in that space. Yeah, amazing. Mm. Beautiful. And so those awards and stuff, those were, those are pretty, that recognition uh, and that sort of profile that the studio was starting to build. Did you, did you, you know, did, did you find that that was probably not, was it helpful in the short term or was that just something that, you know, was one, one contribution of many towards the steadily growing kind of reputation and, and, and the kind of renown of, of your studio, you know, like it wasn't some overnight change the scenario completely. Everything's good from that point, but it was just one of those gradual things that kind of made things a little bit easier. Maybe I've got this um, weird theory about awards, Dave. I don't know if oh, tell this, me this, this could be a, <laughs> um, you could do a Vox pop on this. When we find when we win a big award, you know, whatever the tiara version of that particular award is, it doesn't generate any new business, but commendations, Oh, that is a weird theory. Isn't that a weird theory? So commendations, I mean, I think architects always feel a bit dispirited if they get a a, a commendation rather than an award. I mean, it's great to be commended and to be shortlisted in an awards program in such a hot field at the moment is a huge win. But um, the commendations seem to deliver more business. I think maybe clients, (laughs) particularly in housing, they were single houses, they think that you may be the next big thing. The next thing they, they want to they want to back the <laughs> you're an also they want to back the underdog and and they go you know what I, my budget is uh is is commendation rich not award winner not winner rich jury yeah I got a little yeah. room for jury comments as well in, in yeah. the budget I like that's that. exciting that's interesting mm. so yeah. that's a pattern that you've you've observed and so yeah. now when you guys enter a competition you're you're gunning for that commendation hey. Well, <laughs> you always want the award for the um, the straight out ego gratification, you know, yeah. to bask yeah. in four seconds of glory. Yeah. Um, but the commendation seems to have more longevity. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But I mean, also like from a recruitment standpoint, I mean, that sort of stuff, it's got to be helpful in terms of attracting good people that want to work for you guys. You know, there's a lot of studios that people could potentially apply for, like talented people. So attracting them in and getting good people working for you over the long term, that must be. Do, do you find that awards have any impact on that? or Because or, uh, it's one of those classic things when you raise your profile as an architect and all of a sudden, you know, you get these, you get lots of website traffic, you get lots of uh, email inquiries, but they're all from students and they're all from graduates, <laughs> you know, and everyone, that's always this big complaint <laughs> of, ah, oh, we're attracting a lot of students, but, you know, what, what's, well, that's not really helping us. But in a way, I sort of think it's like maybe a sign that people would be keen to work for you. That must be a good thing in terms of in terms of how the brand's looking. It's really great. We've got an awesome team. Um, we're really really interested in playing to the strengths of the team because they're. Mm. I have another weird theory. Do you want to hear another weird theory? Oh, 
Come on. This is number two. Maybe this Unload is Unload as many of these weird theories as you want. This is great. <laughs> this didn't come up during our pre, pre-call scout shoot. But anyway, no, how exciting. No, I've concocted the theories since we spoke. Oh, um, good. A good architect is made up of three good architects. Mm. Isn't that terrible? So yeah, I think you have one person who has the ability to generate from nothing so they can create that spark or the magic to get something going. Yeah, inject it with an idea or a conceptual framework or, or a big ambition from the beginning that is a kind of set of guardrails for the other two people on the team. Mm-hmm. And then you have a person who creates project momentum, who's great with consultants, knows what happens to happen next, can plan to client deadlines, can encourage people to accept ideas that might be maybe slightly too challenging for their original preconception. And then you have the person who is head down, getting it done, legend, hard worker, working and they're, they're drawing to work things out, they're drawing to make decisions and they're drawing to instruct people and they're drawing to be compelling. And I think sometimes those three roles are done by two people but very rarely can one person do it all. Mm. So within a high-functioning team, knowing what your role is in, in any, on any particular project on any particular day is, um, is really key and makes for a great wholehearted reliance on team that I think is is the best way to work, most joyful way to work, certainly. So how does that translate into the way that you guys have sort of structured things or you're kind of like, I don't actually don't even know how kind of big Tribe is. Um, what, what are you guys at at the moment in terms of in terms of people? We're um, 12 people. Okay, cool. We're looking for another couple. So four groups of three, <laughs> four projects uh, at a time. Uh, wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> Wouldn't a linear and um, easy to plan life be lovely? <laughs> if you I mean, get another project, you have to hire three more people. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's actually a real concern: is the oh. um, not falling into the relentless growth model. Yeah, no, definitely. This this comes up on the podcast every now and then. I love it when people are saying, you know, we've just sort of slowly added one person a year, kind of thing, mm. you know, and sometimes had to work a little bit too hard, but resisted that urge to kind of ramp up too quickly when a project comes along? Is that what your yeah. sort of experiences taught you as well? Yeah, I think if, you know, it's just a bunch of years you're committing to any project when you take it on, you want to make sure that that project is going to deliver on intellectual growth or um, architectural engagement. It wants to deliver on keeping the business healthy and it wants to deliver on being a happy workplace. So if you, we find, well, I found we, we got up to 18 at one point And my role became, it felt like it was feeding the beast and potentially taking on work that didn't make us happy for, you know, different kinds of reasons. So we've had, we've let ourselves organically contract back to 12. I think we probably want to get to 15 again. That's five groups of three for you, Dave. (laughs) Oh, sounds good. Luxurious. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that, that's a, that's a good, a good place, I think, certainly for a single principal firm. Yep. Oh, for a single principal firm. So beyond that mm-hmm. point, you'd have to do the the William Smart move and get the get the business kind of the CEO person to be to help you. And or, or would it be like a second director, or do you just go, no, I'm 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 a I'm a lone wolf director, and mm-hmm. that's going to be like where I'm comfortable in terms of the size. You know, like it, do you, that around that sort of fifteen, you feel works long term is is kind of where you want to see practice go. Mm. We have a different model from, I think, a traditional architecture practice because mm. for the last, up until six months ago, I was part-time um, with 
kids. And I remember, you know, looking for every bit of literature I could when I was pregnant, thinking, how on earth am I going to do this? Like delegate and reading every book on like, you know, virtual assistants. There's no book. There's no book (laughs) on how to deal with it. So I actually read about succession planning, which was super interesting and has changed how we certainly structure my role, Mm. where a lot of it is as much as possible is um, delegated so that I can be an architect um, rather than be a um, business person. Mm. Um, so that was really interesting. But even Marie Prenius, who's, I don't know, have you had her on the Yep, on yeah, the yeah, about have? three or four episodes ago. That's right. I saw it there. Yeah. I haven't listened to it yet. Sorry, EMP. Oh. But she said when I was <laughs> pregnant, she's like, dude, you got through architecture school. You can do anything. <laughs> yeah, And I think that was probably the best bit of advice I've had for any time we've leveled up in the business is to remember EMP's words. Because <laughs> architecture school was a lot. It was grueling. Yeah, hectic. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, so we've got we've got a business manager and have had for a very long time. So the kind of delegation of um, insurances, employment contracts, HR, marketing, everything, I don't do any of that. And we've also our PR is an external PR person who we took on. We've had external PR for about 10 years and it basically started because we were getting too much media inquiry and it was keeping a junior architect busy, you know, deciding if we we're going to do an interview about a bathroom. I think that was probably in the very early days of the of the internet getting so content hungry. So in terms of growing the 15 people for the current model we're in now, that would suit 15 people if we were to um, change structure in any way, um, you know, that, then, then we could look at growing beyond that. Yep. I think, I think an office manager or business manager is one of those habits of highly successful practices that come up on the podcast. You know, I feel like no one ever tells me they regret getting an office manager or a business manager. It always seems like this kind of quite pivotal, game-changing moment <laughs> in the yeah. studio. So how big was the company at that point where you were able to kind of have the capacity to that? Did you sort of do that proactively maybe a little bit before you kind of really needed to have that kind of office manager person or was it sort of you were realizing, oh, oh my God, I'm about to have a breakdown. This last year has been brutal. <laughs> um, I need an office manager. Somebody please come and save me. <laughs> that would probably be me. I'd be, <laughs> um, I'd be at that point. Look, I think, well, that that point's an interesting point for somebody who's endured architecture school. I think you, um, <laughs> you can yeah, get Yeah, but just putting up with track. suffering yes. and thinking, oh, <laughs> as soon as I finish this one more deadline, it'll all be better. And then it just, you know, keeps coming. Yep. That is so true. <laughs> we started out with a bookkeeper. Um, so when we were probably five or six people, we had a bookkeeper who come in twice a month, I think, to um, basically write invoices and collect debts and do the payroll. Um, and then that we ramped that up to two or three days a week with a um, practice manager, a really great, great guy called Philip Bouffle, who's now got a full-time role somewhere. And he was with us part-time for a very long time and really helped get the um, business in shape. He's a, he did the first um, three years of an architecture degree, so he's got real industry awareness and also did an MBA Oh, wow. So he was a huge asset and helped set up um, a whole lot of business systems. And now we've got a full-time studio manager and Jules, she's um, amazing. She's also an interior designer in her own right. So she can kind of help out 
on the tools as well as managing all of us. And Malcolm's practice manager part-time. Yeah, yeah. So it's clear that you like people that are in those business functions that are also have that creative background as well. They're not they're not just coming in as the kind of MBA only person and mm. then that's their only awareness of design or creativity or, you know, the sort of studio environment or the culture that you're trying to create. You're going for people that have kind of been there, seen what it's like. They, they come from a creative background as well. Like that's, yeah. that's your preference? Yeah, well, I think it's really important that they know what we're selling because, I mean, you know, as our current practice manager says, it's a high complexity, high risk, low profit business. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Let's so start why more would, of those. I know, I know. Excellent. Great idea. <laughs> and I think all architecture firms are that. It's just, you know, you, you're not doing it because you want a high profit, low risk career. So for a business person to intrinsically understand why we are doing it, that there's this kind of unstoppable urge to make beautiful things and to work collaboratively to get the best out of client, builder, team, consultants, and, you know, make magic in between all those imaginations that that is the biggest buzz and reward ever. Um, they really need to understand that. That's so cool. Mm. You mentioned also earlier that you want to be freed up so that you could be the architect and not mm. work on the business. I, I also think that's something that is a pattern that comes up where when we talk about that stage you get to where you go from being kind of the sole practitioner that's running everything to starting to break up your tasks and delegate things and stuff. There's a fork in the road where some architects decide that they want to focus on the business and they don't want to focus as much on the architecture. And there's people that want to focus on the architecture and not as much on the business. And I think that sort of says a lot about like where you want to end, like end up as an architect uh, and what, what your priorities are and like what your sort of aspirations for your practice are. Like, I think that question basically gives you the answer in a way, but, but so you're, you're in the architecture camp. Good. Mm. Like awesome. Love that camp. But yeah. um, that makes sense. Did you ever kind of consider the alternative of kind of going, yeah, well maybe, maybe the gaps I need to really fill are kind of like more people on the tours, more, more project architect, you know, that sort of thing. And then maybe I can, you know, do all this fun HR and, and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> you know, reconcile my zero entries over here, all those enjoyable bits. I, I am interested in business um, as a design exercise. So I think as a, it's a kind of ongoing project. I'm really not great at administration on any front. I, my 13 year old kid fills in forms for me. I'm just not oh, administratively good. enabled. The ultimate delegator. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> I know. We would joke that we had kids so they could teach us how to use the iPad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, funny. Most people have their kids like trying to do the bins and the ironing. You're like getting them to do your bass and stuff yeah, like that. <laughs> that's why we had kids who were good at maths. <laughs> we're not how stupid. That uh, no, I was never tempted to move into a more business administrative role, but I do like the strategic and design element of business. And I'm really keenly aware and have been for a long time that you can't deliver on design if you're unprofitable. Like the profit pays for the time in which you can test things and enter competitions and do all those things that ultimately make you a better design practice or critical thinker. And they, you know, if you're paying 12 salaries, they just can't happen unless you're a healthy business. Mm. So I do think they're intrinsically linked. I don't think micromanaging from the principal helps that 
No. But I do think the principle should be really clear about kind of business strategy and how all the pieces work together. Do you think in terms of profitability in your you know, your approach to kind of achieving that profitability, does that come from more kind of like clarity and control over costs and time and things like that in regards to projects? Or is it more on the other side? Like are you, so that would be like playing defense and then kind of playing offense is just thinking more about pricing and um, charging for things that making sure everything's being charged for and trying to trying to increase incrementally increase those prices as high as you feel that they can go or is it maybe a little bit of both I suppose but like is there a particular area that you focus on when it comes to kind of getting that that profitable comfortable environment that will pay mm. for all that sort of good design work yeah our expenses have really changed with the development of um, different CAD softwares so oh cool yeah so they're real they're so expensive it's horrendous so our yeah. kind of IT line is ridiculous, um, both in the software licensing and managing that software. And they've also done this weird thing that drawing in really accurate 3D at the beginning mm. of a project. Like Archicad type style. Yeah, yeah. Archicad completely skews our um, profitability across stages. Oh, so where we okay. used to be very profitable at the beginning, now we've got huge setup costs at the beginning. Yeah, because we've... you have to add all these like information layers to all of that 3D yeah. stuff just to generate your models, right? Mm. Whereas it, previously that concept stage was pretty light on that detail. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's I think that um, that's an evolving um, check-in for part two of this podcast when we work out how to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But exactly. it's really, it has, I think, you know, general wisdom in architecture is that you would hope to be more profitable before your approvals because a percentage of projects drop off after approvals and that's where your IP is. It really that thing that only one practice can do is in that um, inception phase. So you would hope that it would be profit loaded. But I think that's really switching around now. Yeah, And the really annoying thing is by the time your DA comes out, sometimes CAD's obsolete. So you've got to spend days importing models across templates and blah, blah, blah. Do you end up becoming more profitable in that sort of design development documentation stage though because of the CAD? Like does it kind of balance out? We are just as unprofitable in that stage as we've always been. (laughs) It's so funny. These tools tools make us more efficient, but at the same time, we somehow end up, uh, yeah. Is it is do you, is it partly because of like kind of the learning curve of introducing these new things into the mix? I get, I don't know mm. how long you guys have been doing that kind of Archicad stuff for, but it's been years and yeah. years. Like, oh, it's been years. Decade. Okay. Yeah. So we should be up. We're, we've got the speed of like we're up to speed with it mm. by now, but it's just it's adding yeah, I think this it's, extra it's level. The human, it's the human element. Like how um, deeply do you invest in a model? At what stage? Um, that that's really, and I think that almost depends on the budget. Like if you're doing a very small project, you, you just can't do a 3D DA. I don't think unless you unless your designer is the project manager, is the is the documenter. If it's a one person job, you can be modelling, designing, and going. But if those roles are distributed across different levels of expertise, speed, and talent, then we we are we are experimenting with 2D DA documentation at the moment for houses. And that seems to make more sense. And really? then when we get into tender, we do we build a really great model then. Yeah, okay. That makes Which sense. Se- oh, it seems demented though, right? But there well, it is. And then we use a different software to, th- to build 3D and, and test and make imagery. We use SketchUp for that, which is doesn't require the precision in the inputs. It's a bit more elastic. We call it fast and dirty. 
is ARCHICAD's clean and precise. Yeah, so that's it's due to what you mentioned a little bit ago that you're talking about that there's a risk before that approval stage because, or at that approval stage because that's where projects kind of fall over or mm. something. And that when you talk about that, that I'm guessing that's is that to do with the actual approval process or are you talking about potentially the client theoretically like maybe not moving ahead with their project or something? Mm. It's like where is the risk for you, for you guys in terms of over-investing or like loss leading on that concept stage by making it too complex just to save yourself time later but ending up potentially you know, the project not going ahead and then eating that cost mm. or, you know, break, barely breaking even on that first stage. Yeah, we just got a letter from Suburban Council saying, you know, thanks for your submission. We're really busy. We're not going to look at it. See you later. It was like, so a, a letter like that means you're either appealing straight away as soon as you can, you're going to court, um, so there's huge cost and complexity involved in that or your clients waiting and often you know in the waiting period they'll I don't know have another baby or their circumstances will change or whatever so just the the actual time of the assessment process that's brutal can mean that projects um don't go ahead uh it's it's crazy that there's those bottlenecks still because dwelling approvals are at like a 10 or more year low at the Mm. moment Mm. they're like the lowest since the Gillard government or something some headliners Mm. or the other day so you know, in terms of them being overworked or, or having, you know, too many applications to process, that seems quite weird, doesn't it, when they're down mm. 50% from a year and a half ago or a year ago, you know? Yeah. Well, they've been brutally slow for years. Oh, really? Think, um, <laughs> there, are a few, there are a few standout councils. Yeah. I think you've got a shout out to the City of Sydney. They are really terrific. Cool. But City of the- Sydney, sponsor the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We'll send more Um, development approvals your way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but some of them really, I mean, you know, there's some councils we won't work in. It's just it's just not worth it. God, in the midst of the bloody housing crisis. Yeah. Or the DA, we charge a lot more for DAs in some councils. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. It's um and then the difference between rural and regional councils and urban councils in terms of development process is actually hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like in, in what way? The rural and regional, uh, it feels it feels like it used to be where you could ring a duty planner and have a genuine conversation about a scheme and maybe you've got some non-compliances and you want to just air them with them. Whereas in a in a city council, you have a pre-DA meeting that for which you have to submit almost a full DA, including all your consultants' inputs. And then you have this really elaborate meeting. You get all the... The specialists are supposed to be there. Takes weeks and weeks to get a set of minutes, and then at the bottom of the set of minutes, they say you can't rely on this advice anyway. So it just feels like a, and that that can take you know four months. So and that you know they're busy and they're understaffed. And I think the amalgamations meant that you had a huge amount of movement of staff within planning departments, but it's really it makes it really tough to run a business. Yeah, that is tricky. We haven't spoken about kind of the mix of work you guys do, but it's not just residential, obviously. You're kind of 50% houses, 50% other things, education, other sectors. How do you sort of find running the business across those two quite different, I suppose, systems in terms of the the fee structures, the proposals? I mean, like in terms of like, is the, is the way that you have to structure things and monitor things, does it vary quite a bit between those two areas that you're working in? Or do you find that the way that you've designed as the designer of your business 
do you get the full control to kind of design it as you see fit across those two? Or do you find that you have to have like one set of systems and processes on residential, then a completely separate set that's for public and government and things like that? That we do have different systems for structuring relationships. I mean, the Mm. um, private residential clients, we use the AIA client architect agreement, whereas with um, any kind of commercial client, they'll have their own agreement and it's the whole negotiation piece that goes with that. But ultimately, we're in the business of selling hours. We sell expertise at time. So that's pretty consistent across the two, we call them two kinds, houses and non-houses, across the two kinds of work that we do. But, yeah, it's it's um, being good at estimating how, ta- how long something will take, what level of expertise you'll need on it, and therefore what charge-out rate and what that will cost the business and therefore what do, we need to charge. Do you typically do percentage fees, hourly, lump sum? Like what's your, does it vary by stages? What's your preferred approach? We do a big mix. We don't really mind what we do. Depends on I the think, project then in a way. Yeah, yep, the project okay. and the stage. I mean, I think when something's outside of our control, we always do hourly rates. Um, if it's inside of our control, it's a lump sum fee, um, then that's actually a good control on us not to overwork something. Um, so, and then percentage rates are really difficult because of the perceived conflict of interest, particularly, I think the, the major difference on the residential work is that you're working with an unprofessional client or a client who's not a professional in the built environment. Whereas with any kind of developer, they know what they're doing. So they will, it's very unlikely that they'll come to you with a really badly misaligned brief and budget. Whereas universally every residential client wants something they can't afford so their budget and their brief aren't aligned because they've just said you know this is my brief and my budget's seven dollars fifty so <laughs> um so that's the biggest the biggest difference i think in the in the management of those clients so your residential client never becomes an expert yep yep interesting Can we talk mm-hmm. about your residential clients because mm-hmm comment that you shared with me the other day was this idea of like always thinking about clients as a beginner or like residential clients, they're beginners, it's their beginner house mm. and that you have this kind of education role that you, that you feel because, you know, they're not, they're not experienced. They haven't been through it before. God, that's a lot of responsibility and it makes your job harder. <laughs> well, the great thing <laughs> but, about them um, yeah. is that they're experts in themselves. And I think the really exciting thing and the thing that we really love about doing residential clients is that this idea that you can draw a non-figurative portrait of a family or a person commissioning a house. And that's really the most kind of exquisite privilege and joy to do. So while they're, you know, they're not great at engaging QSs or signing on the right line for their structural engineer or whatever the expertise in built environment might be, they are the ultimate decision maker on their own project and we had one beautiful client, Danny, who said that it was a um, process of self-expression and that through us she was expressing herself and her dreams about the future of her family through architecture. So it's beautiful, right? It's poetic and it's rich and it's really it's super precise to an individual person and their site and whatever we inherit in that place with them, which is great. So it's while they might at contract documentation stage, they're like, what do you mean you need to draw something again? Haven't you been drawing for two years? (laughs) So they kind of don't understand the layers and levels of documentation we need to do. They are experts in themselves, which makes them great. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you do you just sort of deal with those issues as they come up in terms of where you need to educate them on those things, or is it something that you have you ever tried to kind of build that education into the process at some early stage to go, okay, you you now need to come to Hannah's lecture series, weekly <laughs> weekly seminars on whatever or have you guys put together some big book or something i don't know this this kind of comes up sometimes this there's a sense i get from speaking to people when this issue arises that you know we we attempt to maybe put something in place to kind of make this make our lives a little bit easier but mm. it usually feels about it's like a battle we end up kind of losing and giving up on and just going oh we'll just go back to just figuring out issues as they come up kind of thing yeah i think it, there's a real really genuine sense of overwhelm so we do talk through all the stages of work with a client at the beginning and then we reiterate that at the end of every stage. We try to manage that, you know, as seamlessly as possible. But it's, I think um, people think that once, you know, an, an intention is set for a project, some people are like, well, what do you mean you've got to draw it? The engineer's done their work, what do you mean you've got to coordinate it with? And, they, and kind of defining all of those critical stages of architecture is something that we find we have to do over and over again. But that's... Um, I just think that's part of the role. It's just part of the job. Yeah, yeah. So it's all it's all written down in our kind of scope of services agreement. But who's reading it's it? Still, yeah. Look, if you've got any tips on that, I'd love them. Oh, I got no tips on that, and um, that's why that's that's why I do the podcast. I'm trying to find out if there's any good good versions out there. But um, it's interesting. I mean, you touch on this idea of overwhelm. I think that's very true. There's a lot of new information. It's a first time experience for them. Uh, it's mm. kind of, it kind of is overwhelming and stressful and high stakes. And mm. it's one of the most involved decisions and processes of anybody's life, probably yeah. building, building their own house. So obviously like for what I can tell you can definitely, you're definitely em- empathizing with their situation in terms of going through that process. Yeah. I mean, what can we really do? But in terms of clients, you know, you spoke about there's kind of a mix. You mentioned urban and rural earlier. There's obviously like always a variety of different kind of residential briefs. But mm. have you found that there's anything that the clients or the people that approach your studio tend to kind of have in common? I think with the non-residential, probably of that 50%, maybe 80% of those have a heritage component or some like tricky overlay. Um, so they're kind of hard. But lot, lots of heritage um, adaptive reuse work. I really, we really love that. We love working with the conservation specialists and then making beautiful old buildings relevant again. But then there's that amazing education process when you're peeling an old building apart that you learn about construction and you you really embed that sense that the story, that a building tells the story of its age, that it is this like incredible cultural artefact. I think with the residential clients, they are so diverse, honestly. You know, the only thing that unifies them is they want a house, <laughs> as far as I can tell, or a dwelling um, of some sort. They're so diverse. You think, you know, single people, massive families, couples, um, lots of animals, no animals, amazingly glamorous waterfronts, hideaways in the bush, a couple in England, suburban and urban Sydney. That's really awesomely diverse and I love that I love that we um, meet all sorts of different people and we get to know them and understand I think that really poetic thing about designing a house for yourself is you really are particularly in Australia where there's so much expressive freedom in architecture there's this amazing potency to um, imagining what your future dwelling will be 
And I, and I love being a channel for that. And I think it allows us to be really experimental. We don't really have a house style as such. We are agile and responsive. (laughs) No one's a... I don't think anyone's ever come on the podcast and gone, yep, our house style, we're very proud of it. No, everyone always says we don't Mm. have a house style. I could bloody get it tattooed on my forehead at this point. Are you calling BS on all (laughs) architects ever? (laughs) Architects like to say certain things. uh, They have certain things they like to say um, and that would be one of them. So, But no, it's like fair enough. I understand what you're trying to say. um, Are you playing architect bingo? Have I just got like one point for architectural (laughs) cliche? No, I'm playing the drinking game. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you are telling the truth. I mean, that is that is right. I mean, you are each each situation is is very is a very different kind of catalyst. You approach it very differently. The constraints are different. The challenges are different. Clients different. So of course, it's mm. not just you know cookie cutter. Let's just um, you know we really like houses that have orange triangles, and we just do every house like an orange mm. triangle. And if mm. anyone if anyone wants one of those, they come to us, kind of thing. Like it's not yeah. that simplistic, but well, it does I'm, happen like that. So we did our job number two, which was the Hafner House in Bondi Junction, was a white box, and then we yeah. did maybe eight years of white boxes after that, <laughs> and then we did an orange triangle. Yeah, I think I, I think I had that burnt into, burnt into my mind. <laughs> Uh, like a terracotta triangle or something, yeah. and then that yeah. you guys did that for a while. Yeah, and that, you were and in that, you were in that, you were loving it. That was the the passionate yeah. about that material and that sh- and that form for for well, a time. Well, actually, you you do one, and um, and then you attract people who want one of those. So we're doing one, another one at the moment. We've got an orange triangle under construction. Dave, we'll send you some photos. Somebody's ten-year-old, <laughs> you know, issue of houses are right. They found it deep in the yeah. mailbox and they pulled it out and they realised, yeah. oh, I want one of these. <laughs> but How that, exciting. I mean, that was an idea that came out of a, um, a heritage response about like Sydney's um, garden suburbs with all this terracotta under a canopy of eucalypts. Um, so we wouldn't, we wouldn't do one of those in a where it was inappropriate. Yeah. No, it's an interesting issue. I mean, one thing you said that you said they don't have anything in common, but then this sort of sense of self-expression is something that they mm. clearly have in common, that yes. they are interested in expressing themselves and unto the world um, and mm. through their house. And, in, and you know, so that's that that must be something that kind of re- they see in your work and it resonates this sense of like that's an, I don't know, how do you, how, how do you sort of, like, what is that sort of sense of, you know, wanting to express yourself in a, in a project, mm. in a house? I mean, what, what do you, could you like psychoanalyze that a little bit for me? <laughs> well, the woman who said that she, the house was a um, process of self-expression. That was a, a project we I finished in 2008 or 2009. I think it's a really old project, but it's, it was, the idea was it was a big shed with the, and the bedrooms were boxes that floated within and then there was a lot of void around it and it was an um, attitude to sustainability but also a kind of formal arrangement, formal diagram. And they were so on board with that, with the kind of, um, with, yeah, how, how you talk about um, form making and, um, and logic within, within a building. So that was great. And we're just um, doing a house now for kind of eclectic um, collector of, lots of things and they've bought this beautiful old arts and crafts house and with the heritage houses we try to embody the spirit of the architect who built them so what would an arts and crafts architect do with the materials available to us and the technology we have at hand so we've had a lot of fun with materials and detailing and every time something comes up if a kind of 90s minimalist impulse is towards 
a detail of nothing. Our detailing impulse in this one is the detail of everything, which is really representative of Beck and her attitude to stuff, but also her love of the house. So I feel like they kind of are, um, the people get embodied in it. And I'm, I think architecture or the generation of anything creative has an element of play in it and how much a client engages with that playfulness, mm. I think is very much a portrait of them and it expresses itself in the house. Yeah, interesting. So that's prob- that sort of playfulness is probably one of those sort of associations that people have with the studio. Mm. So like heritage and playfulness and yeah. is there a third word we can? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we do some really pretty austere and butch things as well. Oh, cool. You know, um, <laughs> when it feels appropriate, like we did that, um, the um, electrical substation converted into a house Yeah, that's really, we were joking, it was butch fam. It's like industrial, it's really tough, but then it kind of yeah. um, twinkles as if it's covered in crystals. Yeah, very cool. Mm. So they're, yeah, it's playful, it's fun. Like if you were to kind of do a survey of, of these, um, these residential clients and say like what project was it that we've done that really like resonated with you and made you feel like we were the studio you should speak to. Mm. Do you think that there would be like a pattern that would emerge there, like some 80-20 thing where like 80% of people said one project or yep. do you feel like it would just be a mix because those clients are quite quite diverse in terms of what they're interested in? Certainly the Roseville house, which is the brick terracotta gable on the little tiny weeny steel legs, that was a real crowd pleaser. And maybe five years before that, the Willoughby House, which was another house-shaped house, you know, the, the kind of cartoon of a house. And I think that idea of a, something being quite responsive to context and recognisable but then abstracted and a little bit uncanny, I, I find that quite pleasing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think, I, don't, I don't, don't, don't want to do like little opera house houses in suburbia. I feel like that's not my bag. But, um, but contextual work that's also playful and relevant and doing new things without having to have a big old shout about itself, that's, that's a happy place. Yep. No, I like it. There's this book, I can't remember who it's by, Derek something, and it's called Hitmakers and it's about why do things become hits and why do things mm. kind of go viral. Mm. And his, his theory was that it has to feel very familiar but have this like unique kind of twist to it. And yeah. I think with these projects that are like the shape of a house or kind of the way that you would sort of draw something as a, mm. the way the kid, a kid might draw a house or whatever. There's a sort of sense of like, Oh, that feels like I felt I've seen that before that there's a sort of nostalgia about that sort of form. And I could, I'm just trying to think about why there's this, why these two projects might've kind of taken off. It's just that sense mm. of that familiarity that you're speaking about, but doing something a little bit different and new with it. Right. Mm. I think that, that I, th- I think it was that same book. I'm not sure. I could be misquoting wildly. But they said that with a pop song, if somebody does something new, the first time, the bulk of the bell curve hear it, they hate it, and the second time they're ambivalent, and then the third time they love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably <laughs> so we've just got to get one. get three clients across the line with a particular direction, and then and then it becomes a hit. It, it's true. There's another thing that was in that book, which was talking about how all of the sort of like impressionist painters that people know of like Monet and all that sort of thing. Now all the names that anybody recognizes can all be traced back to one curated exhibition 200 years ago or whatever, where that group of six or seven people were together in this really impactful exhibition. And then they became this generation of 
and anybody that wasn't in that from that art, art generation, nobody's heard of them. <laughs> like they yeah. completely, completely lost their relevance. And I think that happens in architecture too sometimes. And, mm. you know, you, uh, interesting earlier, you mentioned there was even just that thing you did city of Sydney and there was just these, these names, but that was so many years ago, but it's like interesting that those names are all kind of, you know, kind of relevant people today. And I sort of wonder about, you know, these, these things that you do as an architect and get involved with that can have this almost butterfly effect later on down the track where mm. you'll do certain things together. And this is like a bit of a complete change of subject, but talking about, you know, you're, you've been pretty involved in the industry generally, like over the years, um, talks and events and, and, and getting in the mix on certain things. That's been something that you've done consistently over the last sort of 20 years. Firstly, when did that sort of stuff start? for you in terms of when did you start getting out there and public speaking and things like that? What was the the kind of call to, to get into that? And then also like in terms of continuing with that, I suppose what you've what you've sort of enjoyed about doing that or how that's been beneficial and and just that sort of stuff. The kind of the personal brand, the Hannah, the Hannah tribe <laughs> personal brand that we all know and love. Oh Dave, I, I feel really uncomfortable with personal brand. I'd rather just be a person. <laughs> Um, but I guess that that um, conference in in 2008 was the first time that you know I'd given a talk to the profession, and then it, you know that project went on to win awards, and then we started publishing things that would win awards. So the invitations came in, and it did never really occur to me to say no. So I suppose it was- <laughs> I think that's what separates people. Honestly, it's the people that hesitate and say no and get nervous, and there's the ones mm. that just kind of go, "Yeah, why not? I don't care. It could be a waste of my time, but." I'll just do it anyway. Hence, most of my podcast guests, <laughs> the, ones, the ones you actually oh, hear from. <laughs> the people who say yes. Exactly. Well, I think it's such a great podcast. Exactly. I'm really excited to contribute to the, to the conversation. Um, the thing that comes out of giving industry talks that I find really useful is that forced reflection. So they take forever to put together and... I use it as an opportunity to really, you know, reflect on what we've done in the last six months or year since giving the last talk. That's been super useful because practice can be breakneck. You can be doing, 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 doing and losing yourself in the design of a particular project but taking the time to reflect over what a project says within a portfolio and within a greater Australian architecture conversation and global architecture conversation. That's something that some it's good to take the time to think about. Yeah, definitely. So getting that stuff together. I mean, does, something that comes up, I think, often on the podcast when we talk about like, you know, writing or giving talks and doing that sort of that preparation and that clarifying and that self kind of examination and everything is that it kind of becomes like a little bit of a per- personal and professional growth moment where you have mm-hmm. to kind of um, critique your own work and you're under a bit of pressure to be like, could this have been a little bit better? If I was doing this again, would I have done that the same way? Mm. Or I, I'm kind of, it's a, it adds a little bit of like accountability. Um, mm. And this is not my opinion. This is just something that's been brought up multiple times on the podcast by different guests. Mm. Do, you, do you sort of get that sense at all in terms of when you do those sorts of things, when you engage with the industry, are you also going like, you know what, this, this is stressful. This is annoying. This is putting me under pressure. But at the same time, it's one of those things that kind of like helps to drive me to continue to not not sort of stay static like as an architect maybe and to and to kind of continue to push it I suppose yeah Yeah, definitely stepping outside of that comfort zone and thinking about how you present work as a whole to a community of your peers and a community of your peers who are trained to be you know hypercritical 
Um, and I add to that community my own inner critic who can be <laughs> awful. She's the worst. <laughs> so there's a whole kind of psychological drama that goes into the preparation of, of the talks, the, um, but also thinking about how you might frame the work as a whole. I think there, there were a lot of memes on the internet maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, the, the, the design process memes. Have you seen those? I think so. Which ones? Like, I don't know, they're like six or seven stages of design. Like this is going to be the best project ever. This is awesome. <laughs> oh, my God, this is really hard. Oh, my God, this is really shit. Oh, yeah. my God, I'm really shit. And then you come out of that trough. Um, oh, yeah. no, this is okay. And Actually, then you like started, awesome. to, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Back to I, the think, um, I think the preparation of a talk um, is a process of, going through that that psychologically um, and poor old Elise and Vito in the office have been putting the talks together for the last couple of years so they put the presentations together. You can see them going, oh, God, here she comes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, they've been, you know, incredibly helpful and um, supportive through that process as um, sounding boards as well. Yeah, that's, um, it's a good discipline. But like all discipline, it hurts. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of the events that you kind of invited to speak at, I mean, this is where I'm interested in your kind of view of how the industry has maybe changed over well, probably the 15 years or so since you were first public speaking and things like that. Mm. Where's the balance between kind of presenting your work and then events being about, about kind of engaging with, I suppose, like other issues or talking about bigger kind mm. of our role as architects and all these all those sorts of things? Do, do you find that the kind of the, the conversation has maybe shifted a little bit or, or was that kind of always been where these events are sort of at in terms of their tone that, you know, it's not just this straight kind of let me explain this building and why we did mm. this and that, but there's more There's more to it. There's kind of a story going on behind that, a bigger bigger mm. picture thing. I think the role of the talks is to try and identify um, larger trends and if architecture is, you know, the most lasting um, piece of culture, how are we representative of the issues going in culture and society at a particular time? So I think that's probably the role of of discourse. The big change I've noticed in um, speaking events is really the broadcasting of them. So when I was a baby speaker, I, there was a sense that you would really honour the room with, and I, and I know I'm unusual in this, but I would honour the room with um, deep honesty and vulnerability. I gave a talk in 2015 that people still, come, they're like, well, that talk you gave in 2015 was like so honest. <laughs> I still cry I, when I think about it. Yeah. Well, it was pretty, it was, that was a conference, a, a national architecture conference called Risk. So I thought, well, I had to take a big risk and really expose <laughs> my delicate underbelly. But when a talk is broadcast on the internet forever, you just don't want to be as real. It's like, you know, the tattoo you didn't get when you were 18 that you would hate now the internet makes things really permanent and therefore makes people more guarded and less interesting. Yep. So I, I think there's that. a there's a real role for showing up in the room and talking about architecture with your peers in a way that doesn't have such long consequences. That's interesting. I get I get worried about that too like in terms of when I'm when whenever I'm asked to give a talk on the on the odd occasion where I'm asked to give a marketing talk, I usually I'm most interested in talking about things that are kind of new to me that I've been focusing on recently, right? Like maybe things mm. that I've been kind of experimenting with over the last few months or whatever. But that's sort of fraught with risk because 
half of it will be wrong. I'll change my mind about the other half, like, you know, three months down the road. And there is that kind of worry of going like, you know what, this video is going to be here for like two or three years. Um, Mm. This is actually probably not the best time for me to go out there and take some risks and experiment with some, with some new ideas. I'm probably going to have to stick to the old material. Mm. Like, yeah, it does, it does kind of change things a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it really does because we like the, that talk you give where you're working through new material and having new yeah. ideas and it's synthesizing. Your Dave in five years might look back and think that was terribly naive, but ultimately that's that's what growth looks like, right? Yeah, it looks like being excited about stuff that you don't know yet, and I think we all want to be there. That's an exciting place to be. I'd much rather give a a naively optimistic and joyful talk about something I'm not an expert in and yeah. something that's maybe well rehearsed and a bit stale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then there is terrible internet shame as a result. I know. And then, oh, God, I've also had situations where people have, like, quoted things I've said three years ago in talk, three or four years ago in talks, and I've gone, oh, fuck, I totally disagree with that now, <laughs> but I'm just going to have to pretend I back it. <laughs> Never good. When you're doing your talks, I mean, is it and your kind of presentations are sort of being put together and things like that, like do you, do you tend to like gravitate around a particular like recent project or is it more of a, do you do you generally lean towards kind of an overview of like your career broadly? Like I guess it, it's always going to depend on the audience, isn't it? So it's probably a stupid mm. question, but I, I just suppose like, you know, what, how, do you, how do you sort of tackle it? Do you like to be kind of focused and specific or do you kind of like keep it kind of big and macro? It, it, it does depend. I think the first question I ask myself is, is there, um, is there a brain itch that I need to scratch? And I've got, I'm going to give myself, you know, 20 hours to do that. Let's go. Um, so firstly, I'm opportunistic. <laughs> um, secondly, I'm empathetic. So who is the audience? Is it an audience of architects? Is it non-architects? Um, and what's the greater framework of a, you know, conference or symposium. So I think there's a contract between speaker and audience. If you've been asked to speak, then you have to try and keep that particular audience interested for the 40 minutes or whatever it is, which is, you know, not easy talking about buildings. I could have a real crack about gutter detailing and thing, but I think that would, you know, that might keep 5% of the audience on their chairs and everybody else having a snooze. So, yeah, what are they there to see? Um, and then there's, a, you know, I can do a broad survey of a Basquillian project or deeply dive into a few of them that might be particularly relevant here. But I've recently went completely rogue. I gave a talk at Bond University a couple of weeks ago and I'd done a whole day of crits with their graduating students. Um, so I, So half the audience was graduating students and then the other half of the audience were local professionals. And I asked them what I should talk about. Oh. And I had a massive bank Improv. of slides. Oh, you and, actually had, um, you had the slides though. I had slides so I could pull up projects that might illustrate a theme. Yeah, but they, in, they wanted to talk about professional confidence, mm. which was a massive surprise to me, but it came up again and again and again in the crits. So mm. I asked them that and they unanimously wanted to talk about confidence. Which is so interesting. You must have come across really confident. (laughs) (laughs) How did you get so confident? That was the question. Why did they pick this topic? What was this coming from? You stormed in there, no no talk prepared. (laughs) Very confident. I did have a talk prepared, but they didn't want to hear that one, so I gave them a different one. (laughs) I love it. 
Next next topic we'd like to hear about is spontaneity, since let's you're demonstrating go. so much of that. That's awesome. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's cool. But I think that's also interesting because I didn't even, I didn't even like kind of really set this up properly because I think what's kind of interesting about the kind of talks is that when you think about, oh, well, what talks are we giving? Like, you know, um, you know, flying to Melbourne and doing some M pavilion thing or whatever, like what mm. architecture talks are there? There's conferences. There's, there's not, there's not much. Right. Mm. But what you're doing is like, you're actually going out there and you've been, you've been engaging with like a broader array of like events and things like that. Mm. Like you have, you've received a wide variety of invitations you know, to, to do all sorts of things. Right. Um, mm. so, so you're talking to really like a, often a non-architect audience, um, the general public, mm. tell us about them. What's their deal? <laughs> like in the, well, in, here in the office talk world, we don't know anything about the general public. We only care about <laughs> other architects. So well, I think the general public love the idea of architecture and they love the idea of architects, but when an architect pitches a talk for architects and delivers it to the general public, then it's just not going to land. Mm. We, um, we use a lot of jargon. Um, we presuppose a lot of understanding of creative process and the general public, even other creatives, just that's not accessible to them. So I gave a talk at Semi-Permanent a couple of years ago. I can't remember what the um, theme was, but I gave everybody plasticine and had them make models of the emotion that they felt during COVID <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a way of discussing creative collaboration. Yeah. It's, Creativity generating from zero, how you rely on the person sitting next to you if you run out of ideas and you need to creatively collaborate. So all these things that happen wow. um, in an architecture studio but are pretty opaque if you just describe them, mm. we did as a um, an action lecture. Wow. That's interesting. Mm. Getting down to the real, like, first principles before mm. even really talking about architecture, you're talking about, like, yeah. what's what's kind of beneath that in terms of yeah. just, just creativity. and I think that's, that's really cool. important for architects to be talking about as well because I think the model of architecture practice is changing from a single genius auteur um, to a, a much more collaborative and inclusive idea of how you make things happen. So I do think it's, it's a good idea for us all to think about what creativity means and also to think about beauty. Yeah, no, please go. Well, I just think we've, you know, had a lot of, a lot of, generations of being scared to talk about um, things being beautiful or joyful or making your heart sing or but that experience of you know today the the way the winter light is making blue shadows in golden patches it's heaven and yeah it's definitely happy making over time I'm getting more and more just interested in that <laughs> I'm starting to not care about anything else <laughs> other than things being beautiful and looking good I'm becoming completely mm. superficial when it comes to architecture I don't know what's yeah. happening well, you can also, I mean, you can expand that, Dave. You can make it having a great acoustic quality or having a beautiful thermal quality. Um, That's cool. You, you can. I can't judge that from Instagram. So what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time to visit architecture. Come on. I live in Perth. No, I'm joking. Yeah, no, that makes sense. One of the issues that kind of comes up is that architecture is such a granular kind of fragmented industry made up of hundreds of thousands of like very, very, very small businesses. Mm. And it's kind of difficult to have a collective sort of voice to the public or to mm. coordinate around like advocating for these issues or, or, or whatever. Like I don't know what the successful strategy kind of looks like. Is it just like you know, every little practice does a little bit of time or does something? <laughs> like... <laughs> 
does the one little thing. I mean, it's always, in, it's always interesting when studios do find ways. And I talked about this, I think, with William Smart on his episode about him sort of creating a buffer for uh, education and wanting to host events and talks and things mm. and just doing that as a studio as a sort of public good kind of thing. And mm. that's beautiful. I love it when studios like do things like that. But uh, individually, it's like how much impact do we actually kind of have? I sound kind of like defeatist, or, but I'm kind <laughs> of just, I'd love to hear your angle on it because obviously you guys are a relatively small studio in the scheme of the economy, but have an impact, get out there and talk about things and, and do your bit, you know? Mm. Look, I think the vast majority of architects really care and we really care about the future of our city and the quality of our city, particularly the quality of housing. If you grow a city by units of housing, how do we do that? And I think in caring, if somebody asks you to, to talk, then that that's a, um, there's a natural conclusion there. I think the Institute of Architects, has historically played a really awesome role in advocacy and that's been up and down over the last decade but I feel really excited certainly for the current administration in New South Wales and change of leadership at the federal level. I I really hope that that advocacy role will be um, taken up and you have you know architects like Philip Thallis running for local government and being very vocal on urban issues. So I think you know, if we're given an opportunity to have an individual voice, it's important to use it to support architecture and urbanism. And if we can, if we've got the extra bandwidth, getting involved in the Institute is a great idea. Yeah. What pops into mind is like, I feel like we don't really think about the really big studios that often. Mm. <laughs> and I don't really have them on the podcast very much. I usually have like sort of small and medium practices. But when you I think should of the get Institute, them on the, on the podcast. I should, but it's hard to work out who to get. Because oh, they're these like enormous like ant colonies of architects and it's hard <laughs> to work out who the right person to speak to is. Like do I want to speak to the marketing person? Do I want to speak to like the oh. CEO, the, ma- the studio director, the managing director? There's like this org chart is crazy. So I've just, I have been reluctant. I've got some, I've got some hot tips for you from my black book, Dave. I think it's a okay. really good idea to talk to them. And I think, um, you know, in a, in a good big practice, that's a lot of smart people working really hard. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There, you know, it wouldn't be an easy job keeping one of those things afloat and, no. and delivering those huge buildings under the kinds of pressures, time and economic pressures that they face. I think the big studios actually have like quite a lot of influence, don't they, in a way? I mean, mm. I don't know. That's why I guess I need to find out. But I just think in terms of like, you know, raising architecture's point of view, you talked about the, the institute and stuff like that. But I also just feel like, oh, these big companies, so maybe they've got this, uh, maybe they've got a little bit. Maybe uh, maybe they're already doing quite a bit. I just I just would be interested to find out. I, I think they're really promoting um, small design practices as well. So mm. there's been a lot of certainly push from the city of Sydney about having diversity within competition teams. So the big mm. practices are taking on small practices, emerging practices, and practices with um, diverse leadership. And they've been really great at promoting small mm. practices. Certainly a lot of the large projects we've done have been collaborations with big practices. That's been a good relationship where it's like felt like a meaningful, like you yeah. both have a meaningful role to play in that. Yeah. In the gigantic urban design projects we've done with larger practices where there's the kind of delivery of a really complex mathematical puzzle of delivering, you yeah. know, yield that gets enough sun, that gets enough public space, that meets all these metrics. They might have a huge team running the model and then we come in as a kind of quality and detailed design overlay or an innovative housing overlay. So applying different 
architectural models that can go into this great big thing that's inevitably mathematical at the early stages. Mm. So that's really, that's a lovely way to work. Then on other projects, you know, there'll be like a big tower and a small building. We'll take the small one. I don't want to do big towers. <laughs> 14 stories max at the moment. Yeah. We spoke last time um, a little bit about, we're talking about like this whole public procurement issue and it's an issue I haven't jumped straight into because, I mean, frankly, it's it varies so much from place to place and um, so many like subtleties to, you know, whether it's councils or New South Wales versus Victoria or whatever that, I'm not. I'm always a little bit blurry on some of the details around this. But you were talking the other day when we spoke about, you know, some of the issues around space for young practices and small practices, and something about established studios working on toilet blocks, and it all sounded very provocative. So maybe tell me a little bit more about that. <laughs> um, I think when when I started working part time when I had my first kid, so 13 years ago, um, we stopped doing public tenders, we just didn't have the time for them. They're really time consuming mm. to put a tender in. And then we were finding that we were, you know, 15, 20% over on fees. And now, you know, 20 year old practice, we don't have a portfolio full of um, public buildings, but we've done, you know, 22 hectare master plans and a thousand, a thousand apartments and small towers, 14 story towers max. Um, but we can't we can't win a toilet block because we haven't done a toilet block, and then we can't win a larger public project because we haven't done a smaller public project. So it's really, um, and I don't want to sound defeatist about it. We know we love the projects we have, but I think that um, traditional aspiration towards doing public work as the the highest and best work you can do is probably something that's now eluded us. Mm. It's like you kind of have to start early on that process and never mm. and persist with it, you know. Mm. It's like sometimes I see somebody who's really good at skateboarding yeah. <laughs> and I don't know how to do that and I go, <laughs> I'm jealous that they could do that. I wish I had also started when I was five, you know, because I, be, I could be doing kickflips right now. I feel like that's what I'm getting from public architecture. It's like a little bit like I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd done that row of toilet blocks 15 mm. years ago because I could be doing you know, I could be doing Olympic stadiums at this point. Well, if I were doing Olympic stadiums, Dave, <laughs> I hope you'd be doing like angle grinds on them or whatever those things are called. <laughs> I'd just be watching other people do it, obviously. Yeah. I think, well, now that you say that, you know, I think you should totally take up skateboarding <laughs> and I should put in a public tender. And you should do, you you should do a little back. bike rack outside a library somewhere. <laughs> oh, my God. That sounds terrible. <laughs> it's so crazy because you also, I mean, you are doing like, you guys do do projects like with government, I mean, education, that's like state mm. government stuff, right? So that's it's actually, like. But, we don't do state government. Oh, no. Schools. Okay. No, so it's like private not, schools. We would not win those, Dave. We, oh, we do. For, for, for reasons, for aforementioned reasons. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So it's more private yeah. education stuff. Yeah. And even that private education stuff you feel like doesn't doesn't translate into the government education stuff because of the oh, kind definitely of requirements. Not. No. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's mm. that's such a shame, hey? Mm. It is, because we would love to do um public education. We'd love to do public projects. Mm. And look, you know, next time we speak, I'm pretty sure you're gonna be an expert skateboarder and we'll have a public project. <laughs> so we will have proved ourselves wrong. Oh. Um yeah, but at the moment that's certainly um, our position. 
That's interesting. What a defeatist note to end the um to end the, the <laughs> podcast on. But there must be like a positive. Well, I, I suppose. Do you think that there's any any light in the tunnel there in terms of is it something that's at least been kind of recognised at some level as an issue? I mean, city um city of Sydney mentioned is really trying to create these kind of opportunities for for small studios to get like an opportunity to get involved in these projects. Mm. Or is it just like not looking great at this point if you're a studio that is not in the position to be able to kind of work your way up the ladder from, you know, from zero in terms of in terms of public stuff? Look, I definitely don't want to be pessimistic about it because if, if we decided that's what we wanted to do, I'm sure we'd, we'd just do it, yeah. go after it and do it and you would, you know, take a hit on the first couple financially. But it just doesn't seem like a, a good decision at the moment. The City of Sydney's, again... The city of Sydney, you know, I'm obviously sponsored by them. <laughs> <laughs> they're sponsoring your podcast. Yeah, totally. They, their competitive design competition policy has been amazing for giving young practices their first projects. So I think that's, and they're probably not public projects, but projects with developers. So they're, um, I think that's a really amazing contribution to architectural culture. There was a, I did a um, by Ira Hadley, I don't know, like 13, 14 years ago, where Andrew Burns, Matt Chan and I were selected as emerging architects and went to London for two weeks to hang out with the Architecture Foundation, the London Architecture Mm. Foundation. And that's such a great organisation. And if some amazing philanthropists felt like setting one up here, I think it would be a terrific idea. But they went around local government areas and helped them identify where they could be running competitions. So, you know, you've got a park with some really terrible loos, let's put some better loos and what did you say? Bicracks yep. um, in there. <laughs> and the Architecture Foundation would help them write a brief, help them run a competition, and as a result, support emerging architecture practices to get into different kinds of projects. And mm. some of them didn't go ahead and some did, but it's just a really um, terrific piece of architecture culture. So, yep. Dave, I think you should start that. Okay, yeah. I'll work on it. By our second episode, I'll be able to tell you all about it. <laughs> Have like a, um, a half pipe in the foyer of your <laughs> architecture foundation offices. Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great chatting to you about these issues, many, many, many different topics. I uh, really appreciate it and thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. Great to chat. That was my conversation with Hannah Tribe from Tribe Studio Architects. If you'd like to learn more about Tribe Studio, you can visit tribestudio.com.au. You can also follow the studio on Instagram at tribestudio with an underscore at the end. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.